Welcome to Next in Nonprofits. I'm Steve Boland, and I am very pleased to be joined today by Angela Titus, the brand and social impact strategist from Causeway. Angela, thanks so much for taking time. Thanks so much, Steve. It's a pleasure to be here. We were introduced by a mutual friend talking about all the good social work out there and our our mutual passion for moving organizations forward and uh, lots to talk about with that. But um, before we begin any of those things, can you just talk a little bit um, about your background and what you do at Causeway? Sure. Um, Causeway is a small uh, consulting firm and we help nonprofits and companies optimize their social impact. So that could mean program improvements. It could mean how do they partner with each other better. It could mean cause marketing, whatever the need is um, of the nonprofit or the company. So there's lots and lots of needs out there for charities to start thinking about how they do their work differently. And um, we were connected with each other because of this um, conversation about the the tactics that maybe worked once um, are not really necessarily the right ones, but it tends to be something that charities stick with once they've established a process. And um, as we were talking, we kind of framed this conversation in terms of if if you were starting a charity um, in the 20 teens, in the, in the later part of the the beginning here of this 21st century, you do things very differently than if you were starting your charity in the 20th century. And th- that, that thought of if you would have started it differently now, why haven't we gone back and looked at some of these practices and things that don't work particularly well um, and start to adjust them is just a consistent issue in charities as I talk with people. And I think you've seen some of that in organizations you both worked at and worked for in, in your con- more consulting roles. And I, I want to approach that from all sorts of angles, but um, uh, as you talk with charities about the idea of moving forward, are there specific themes or ideas that you kind of see people struggling with? I do. Um, I I think that you're so right. There's such an evolution of the sector. And if you think about modern nonprofits like Kiva or Donors Choose, for example, and um, other young nonprofits, they're acting and functioning really differently from more traditional nonprofits and that have been around for say a hundred years. And um, I think one of the things that everyone's arrived at is that we need to be focused on impact, not output. And that may mean changing programs, evaluating and even discarding things that don't work. And that's something that typically older nonprofits really struggle with especially the last one of giving up something they've been doing for a long time. Yeah, and I've had the pleasure of having a few folks on the podcast that have talked a little bit about um, that shift to um, outcomes versus outputs and and what that long-term impact really looks like. So mm-hmm. if, if you were to describe kind of a, a typical 20th century charity that would make a, a pitch for support or, or talk about their work, um, how do you differentiate that idea of just measuring an output put versus those longer term impacts? Well, you know, it's really that we've moved from, it's not about how many billions of hamburgers sold, it's about what actually resulted. So was there a policy change in the issue area? Did a person's behavior or life change substantially? Uh, you know, if you're if you're talking about pets and having pets adopted, then output makes sense. The more pets get adopted, the better. But for some more complex issues or for most, most nonprofits, it's no longer enough to just have served a lot of people. It's about how did you really 
move that group to behavior change or to having longer term lasting change in their lives. And so it, it, it's moved from sort of activity based thinking to really having a true lasting impact on an issue or a person or population. And one of the things that's different in this 21st century nonprofit than the assumptions of the old one is is the ability to access information about potential impacts um, and connect that to your charity's work, even if you didn't do the um, the long-term impact research, for example. And I think to to jump in on that example of the the companion animal charity um, idea, we. I think for for a very long time, people have looked at you know the the still photo in the image of uh, a uh, an animal shelter and said, well, that's a really cute dog or cat or whatever, um, and maybe had some heart moved around that. Um, now, of course, we can look at you know motion pictures and videos of all kinds of animals as they're coming in, as they need homes, and lots of different ways of communicating the need thing. But we can also pair that with what's the outcome of people that have companion animals in their lives versus folks that um, don't make that choice or don't have those opportunities to um, provide animals with homes and stuff. And and that outcome for people um, is maybe not the thing that, that will uh, encourage a particular person to adopt an animal, but it might encourage a donor to provide funding exactly. for that conversation. So that outcome can be something that is longer term and we may not expect every single rescue operation to do longitudinal studies about the impact of uh, uh, of having animals in the homes of their um, the, the clients that they serve. But somebody out there has, and now with internet access and research and all the rest of it, it's, it's more incumbent on the charity to start thinking about that linkage for their clients than perhaps it might have been before. I, I couldn't agree more. And, and there are folks who are doing research. And so maybe if you're a small or medium-sized nonprofit, you can't afford to do that kind of research yourself. You can certainly access that. And there are studies out there that show the positive impact on health outcomes and lowering stress levels, whether you are an adult or a child. Um, you know, having companion animals can can do all of that. And if your your charity or nonprofit can't afford that, you can certainly go out and try to access others' research and, you know, just cite them appropriately. But I, I think that's a great idea. Right. So measurement and evaluation as a, a more core function or a more expectation of a charity to put something on the table, whatever it may be for your work, is, I think, that 21st century, um, if you're going to move forward, you, you've got to be in that conversation somehow. You can't just walk away from it in the you way that maybe to. you could have in the past. Yeah. So as you help, especially that that more smaller mid-sized charity, you know, folks that um, maybe are that, you know, under $5 million, under $1 million kind of uh, uh, revenue line, um, I, I still run into a fair amount of pushback going, we can't afford to spend money on evaluation because we're you know really lean and we have to put all of it into program. But I, I do think that that's, again, kind of 20th century thinking. And I'm wondering how you push back against the idea of the spending the additional resources on looking at, at outcomes. I would I would say to them that you can't afford not to do it because frankly today's funders have also evolved their grant making and if you're trying to generate funds for your programs you have to show them that you're measuring and evaluating they simply require it it's not an option I think 10 20 years ago you know they would get extra points if you did it mm -hmm. but now they really pretty much require it and so it may mean you 
scale back your spending somewhere else so you have a slice of someone's time that is devoted to measurement and evaluation. So partnering with other nonprofits is also a great option. If you can't afford to have a dedicated person, there may be a nonprofit partner that's complementary to your work that has the bandwidth. So that's another way of addressing measurement and evaluation in the short term. And perhaps the actual fulfillment too. I think that you've mentioned before that uh, you know the evaluation is a component, but um, maybe another twentieth century kind of modality that we can move past is this: we're we're the best at it. Just give us money, and we'll take care of it. But rather, um, we're really good at it in this way, and somebody else might add a different type of value in a different type of space. But we actually need to show up at the same table together and not expect that um, that we have our own lane and nobody else will be in it anymore. Yeah, that is definitely last century thinking, no question. And I think a lot of nonprofits have come to the realization that they need to partner better, but many are not sure what that looks like. And so it could mean that you're partnering with your community, that you're serving differently, sometimes even having them on advisory boards or committees, even involved in governance of your nonprofit. So you really have a true authentic partnership with the community. That's one example. It could be, as we mentioned before, with other nonprofits that allow you to extend your reach, for example, um, or fill in a service gap that you don't have the staff to, or they may have relationships you don't, whether it's with funders or policymakers or others. So really looking at partnering in a really different way, I think, is definitely what modern nonprofits need to be doing. And I think there's a few different ways to share that story for support. Um, you know, one is simply that you're you're kind of transactionally buying services from a better staffed, qualified, um, connected, you know, partner, whatever that might be. So it could be a very specific transactional, like we do all these things really well, but we're buying this additional service benefit, whatever it might be, from our partner. So when we do our grant work, when we do our fundraising, we talk about that as a component of our budget, even though that component is actually going to a different charity. Um, right. It might also be different to talk about co-creation of work um, with those charities, but neither of those is a bad thing. They just have to be defined as you go back to community and talk about how you're going to be meeting those outcomes, um, either in partnership or as more of a, of a purchased service thing so that you don't have to be all things to all people all the time. Absolutely. And, you know, co-creating programs, um, it can be challenging, but ultimately it increases the buy-in of whoever you're working with, whether you're co-creating with a funder or a policymaker or another nonprofit. And so when you, whatever you come out with on the end is going to look uh, authentic, it's going to be built well, and it, it will be worth the pain, I'll, I'll say. Um, and you're probably going to increase your chances of getting a higher level of funding perhaps than you may have if you had not um, pursued that route. So whether it's, you know, collaborating um, around shared goals or where, whether it's just forming a broad multi-sector partnership, it's, I think it's worth the investment um, and of time. Do you have a, a case study or, or one or two in mind? Of, and you don't have to name a specific charity, but just kind of anonymized, sure. you know, we, we thought about this partnership thing in a couple of different opportunities. And, and where would you see how, you know, maybe some older thinking had to be cleared away in order for something to be more successful? 
Um, yeah, actually, there was a partnership in um, a community that's an underserved community in um, San Diego here, and it required partnering across the board with the school system, other nonprofits, foundations, you know, government uh, entities, and even um, getting training and development in how to do that partnering from a national entity that trained everyone on how you do this collective impact approach. How do you arrive at shared goals? How do you have the shared vision? And, um, and actually, it included students from the school. So it wasn't a partnership where it was parents and teachers kind of telling the students what was going to happen. Um, this was all around serving them. And so they were very much a part of it as well. And that created, as you can imagine, a very different tone and dynamic when adults are in a room with kids that they're supposed to be helping and they're accountable to. And I, I have to say those kids were great because they would constantly raise their hands and challenge the adults. And I hmm. think ultimately ended up with a great um, program, much better built to serve them, really. It's about them. So, and that program then uh, was able to secure more and more long-term funding because of all of the different folks that were involved. And it involved um, multilingual translations during meetings to make sure all the parents who may not be English as their first language may not be the, you know, their strength, they were able to fully participate because there was simultaneous translation going on in the room. So it really was an amazing, inspiring thing to see all of that. And, and it's, it's doing very well. Well, and I love that um, concept that you have there about being able to listen from all quarters to um, be ready to change, to to do things differently and not just assume um, you are the recipient of service and we are the people that have researched all the things about how to do service. Therefore, you know, we will do it this way and you need to kind of fit into that box. Um, I, I think that there's a... Um, maybe oblique desire out there to go, yeah, I guess, but, you know, we really do know what we're doing and we really have this experience mm -hmm. and all those things. But it, it gets to a part of our, our very first conversation that I wanted to ask you to touch on here about um, your concept of uh, talent versus HR uh, and that talent might not be um, only staff, uh, but that it could be staff at different levels and how we talk about talent management uh, different from just, you know, who's a staffer, who's a volunteer and what are their lanes and how are they in them uh, is another way to change thinking of this 21st century nonprofit. And I wonder if you can kind of just go go with that for a moment about what talent management means. Yeah, I, I do think that it's about talent management, as you said, versus HR. I think that distinction is important. Seeing something as a resource is different from then taking the next step to proactively managing that and diagnosing what does that really mean and what do we need to change potentially in our organization to truly be doing talent management. And as you said, that could include volunteers who, even though it takes time to manage them, if you pick the right volunteers and you place them in the right places, they could potentially become donors, become staff people. They certainly become champions often for your cause. And so that is a piece of the talent management picture that I think nonprofits have long worked with volunteers. But I think the thinking about who they are and what they can contribute to the organization should definitely evolve. Um, because, for example, Millennials like to get really hands-on in any cause they're passionate about as much as they can. 
And that's a way that you get future staff members and potential donors. And certainly being the champs that they are on social media, they can really be evangelists for your nonprofit. And so I think there there needs to be just a little bit shift in the thinking about volunteers and, and what that looks like. And um, I think another aspect of talent management is really thinking about succession planning. You know, a lot of the nonprofits here in San Diego have CEOs who are retiring. And there's been a realization that there's a gap in succession planning. Not enough attention was paid to really building bench strength, building talent over time. So someone or someone's many could be ready to step into that role. So I think thinking about succession planning, where you're evolving from maybe the founder of the nonprofit or someone who's been in there for 20 years, what happens when that person retires? And are we thinking about it now? And I think that as you talk about not only how do we replace and think about that lead position, but to think about what leadership um, in general looks like in this talent management question, that um, there may not be a definitive um, you know, single word from a single staff member at the top of a food chain, uh, but that rather uh, a more cooperative or shared leadership model uh, among, depending on the organization, if it's, um, if you've got some staff bench strength, if there's a, a number of staffers, it may be lead staff, a more executive staff kind of collaborative role. If not, it might be more shared responsibility within board members and lead staff, but mm -hmm. in some way of thinking that we don't just have a central focus where everything kind of runs through that one single lead staff person. And when that person leaves, everything changes. Uh, yeah. But rather, you know, that the organizational vision needs to be um, shared and created a little differently so that, sure, as some people leave, there will always be impact and you want to plan for transition. But it's not the idea of having um, the one great leader that that has all of the knowledge and ideas. And when that person leaves, everything shifts. Exactly. And, you know, sometimes leadership can come from really surprising places in an organization. And they're often people who are observers and who have accrued a lot of knowledge, but they don't always feel that they're welcome to share that knowledge. And so if you are really pushing down your leadership and redefining for the organization what leadership looks like, and you give people permission to say what's on their mind, you could get some really creative or surprising solutions. And so I do think this idea of shared leadership, even beyond the executive team, is really important. And you often do get some of your best ideas from outside that group. And I think another aspect of this that we haven't talked about yet, but I'm interested in your perspective on this, is uh, um, talking differently in the 21st century about um, leadership when things haven't gone. Uh, according to plan, to to publicly be able to say, uh, yeah, we didn't do that right. Uh, and we need to reach, um, we need to change what we did. We need to talk about how it impacts people, um, whatever, not just we had an experience that, you know, maybe wasn't optimal and we want to refine a little bit, but rather, no, we went the wrong direction here. Um, and, mm -hmm. and we need to say that out loud and address it with community rather than just sort of suddenly announcing a new program and pretending that nobody noticed. Um, and I, I think that, that that's an opportunity for people to think about how their leadership is different. Um, now to engage community with acknowledgement of mistakes uh, and and then it might have been perhaps uh, differently to say in the past folks might have said well we can't acknowledge that we did something wrong with people's money they're going to feel horrible and not trust us anymore uh, so we, we kind of walk away from it 
um, and and just sort of pretend it didn't happen. But I, I think in the 21st century, there is no pretending it didn't happen. Everything is is documented exactly. six ways to Sunday. So we really got to talk about when things are changing. Why are they changing? And how does that shared leadership thing bring community in to talk about that? And it's funny, you know, you say that um, about trust because actually doing that is what's going to build trust today. That's what people expect. If you're always telling the rosy picture and you never have a fall, people believe you're not authentic or that you're hiding something because we have a very cynical group of folks um, in the country today. And it's um, it's actually going to build trust for you to be transparent about the mistakes and to even solicit their ideas of how you improve. You know, this whole idea of sharing your brand with others, that's been in place now for at least 20 years. And it really applies to nonprofits as well. You know, shared vision is shared with everybody outside of your organization that's a stakeholder. And so it's a it's a way to build trust actually with those stakeholders if you say you know what let's sit down and talk about what we didn't do well what we learned from that and to not have this sort of quick debrief that doesn't necessarily result in significant change but to really sit down and, and dissect what happened and then often there's a solution that presents itself but it, it is kind of funny because today's nonprofits have to do the opposite almost of what they did before where they were, well, I don't know that they had to do it, but this is what they did do. They typically would hide some of these things. And now people want to see it where it's all. They want to know. And that's how you build authentic relationships and you build that trust. Right. And sometimes that's dynamic and big, and sometimes it's very small. But if you've got that uh, more shared leadership opportunity that you were discussing um, uh, across a, a range of stakeholders, some of them staff, uh, others in different capacities, I think there's a better opportunity to surface, um, you know, hey, well, I'm hearing from folks that this wasn't well understood or well talked about. Let's let's find a conversation space where we talk about why this, why that, whatever. Um, and if it's just the one one leader, uh, I think sometimes there are, it's hard for community feedback to get to that person because it does feel a little bit like, well, I don't want to talk to them about what I feel didn't go well. It doesn't feel right to me, yeah. but I could come in you know, this side, that side, that staff member, this board member, whatnot, and say, you know yeah. what, I think we missed here. And if if there's an environment where, where that leadership is more shared, I think we've got the opportunity to, to surface those better and create that legitimate engagement that you were just talking about. Absolutely. You're getting people who have relationships at different levels of your organization. And what they say to those folks may often differ from what they would say to the CEO, even if they did it, even if they did talk to that person, they may something say something very different. Yeah. And that if there's enough open culture over enough time with enough of that visible shared leadership, I do think that we'll see more community members feeling comfortable. Um, and of course, the whole world is shifting as we're recording this conversation in 2018. We've got um, high school students in Florida calling the president out. So I, yes. I do think I do think there is becoming that cultural shift of when people don't give you the right information, this power dynamic isn't going to be accepted anymore. We will step up and say that's not correct. We don't believe Leave yes. it. We don't adhere to it, um, and and that will happen more and more and more. I think so. As we are seeing more leadership from non-traditional 
um, areas of our community from people as young as high schoolers, um, I, I, maybe that will become easier. But I certainly think that the charity that leads with that um, is going to be yeah. the easier one to surface those things will be the one that will thrive and survive better uh, in the 21st century than, than those that try not to keep up with that. Exactly. You have to evolve because change is here regardless of whether you're comfortable with that or not. And, you know, people should find some way to embrace that and look at their own organizations and say, okay, what maybe haven't we thought about for a while or we've kind of put to the side because everybody has the long list of things that keeps you really busy and they're all important, but it does, um, it does behoove nonprofits to take the time to take a pause and do some self-reflection. It's actually good to stop and catch your breath and look back and debrief and think about, okay, what, what should we be evolving here and changing here based on what's going on in the external environment, not just what's happening inside our building. So I, I wanted to ask you to amplify that thought a little bit more because it was one of the things that we had hit on in our earlier conversation about, um, you know, for me, if the, the, the good old fashioned 20th century strategic planning processes, you know, you have a, a three year document, you, um, you do that external stakeholder evaluation thing, um, you write it down, you, you have all of that stuff, you make decisions, and then you know, in an ideal world back in the 20th century, you would at least have built a work plan around that document, but um, mm -hmm. often not even that, you know, often it would have been something that people would have shown to funders and um, just kind of programmed around and not yep. really incorporated. Um, Put it there's, on the shelf. <laughs> yeah. And we've, we've heard that criticism of charities for, for a long time now, but I think that the idea of looking at um, self-evaluation or strategic changes more continuously uh, and not necessarily something that gets done on some kind of three or five or whatever year cycle uh, is um, not about resource availability or just everybody decided that three years was the right thing to do, but more <laughs> taking advantage of the tools and technologies and input mechanisms that allow this to be more continuous um, and sometimes mm -hmm. hearing feedback. So can you talk a little bit more about how you chat sure. with charities around evolving that idea of self-reflection, self-evaluation outside of a traditional strategic planning process, or maybe as part of a more dynamic one. Yeah, I'm sure, you know, actually, and I actually worked for a nonprofit that took strategic planning to another level in the sense of engaging people in the community in their strategic plan. It was a three-year plan, but there were about 40 different community members who participated with the staff and with the board in the strategic planning process. And we also solicited using digital, we solicited several thousand uh, community members um, input on different topics. And so it was really kind of breaking apart the old idea of what a strategic planning process is, which is you go to an offsite, certain people, you cuddle in a room, you know, and we did the complete opposite. And it it's very effective in that it really gets the buy-in and trust of the community because their thoughts and ideas would show up in our final plan. And then we did a presentation where they all came back and they saw that it was in the plan. And then they saw us acting on that plan throughout the next few years. And so I do think that kind of breaking away from the old idea of a strategic plan is definitely something that modern nonprofits should be doing. And they may not have to go to the extreme of having lots of people in the community involved, but it's if you can find a way to do it, I think it's uh, very beneficial. 
Well, that's a, a nice segue into one of the other topics we wanted to make sure we hit, and uh, which is this idea that the technology available to a charity today is really one of the driving factors in all of this change that we're talking about, that um, it might have been very difficult to do a widespread engagement process uh, with all these different stakeholders um, before everybody was carrying an internet-enabled supercomputer in their pockets all the time. But uh, now the access to all of those audiences and all of those people is not the expensive barrier. That's not the question anymore. Um, and mm -hmm. the technologies that we're talking about um, are more widespread and more than just the ability to engage um, conversation with community. Certainly that's a huge one, but yep. there's other things about um, how technology as a tool has become accessible, affordable um, to charities without necessarily their practices and cultures keeping up with that. And I, I wanted to hear your thoughts on just how all of that has kind of shifted the work. Yeah, you know, it's really funny because when social media became a thing, um, a lot of nonprofits were some of the first people to jump on that because it was very inexpensive and we're always looking for ways to save money or try inexpensive um, things that we think could also have impact. And now, but now tech should really be everywhere and not just in terms of social media. As you say, it's not just about building communities online. There's also technology like Salesforce to using to manage your donors or key stakeholders and really getting good at managing those relationships. It could be about having a responsive website where people can find out about you or funders. That's the first place many funders are going to go to look at what your story is versus what you put in the grant proposal and how you present yourself to the community. So website is still a really important tool. You could also be using tech to track impact. There are lots of options there um, for tracking your, your programmatic work, and that then can help with the measurement and evaluation piece we talked about earlier, where you don't have a person spending 40 hours kind of going through all these spreadsheets and tables. If you can find a software solution, it's much more efficient, and you can, as a smaller, medium-sized nonprofit, do um, proper evaluation. You could even be using tech to manage logistics. You know, if you're a nonprofit, say, that has a distribution aspect to what you do, like you're um, a food bank or something like that, managing all of the logistics are certainly helped by having the right tech tools. Um, so there's lots of places within the organization where we should be looking for how can technology help us be um, efficient, especially for lean on staff, which I can't think of a nonprofit that doesn't fit that category. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think that um, it's important to emphasize as we're talking about this idea of the 20th century nonprofit and the 21st century one, that yeah, if you're starting today, you start very differently. But if you haven't updated sequentially, there is no need to think that, uh, you know, I first have to go from my Excel spreadsheet to my Microsoft Access database to my local server. No, you can skip the interim steps, right? If you yep. have been lagging behind and you're thinking, well, I can't just go from, you know, spreadsheets to Salesforce. Yeah, actually you yes, can. You can. <laughs> um, exactly. It's, it is a, the, the technology accessibility of being able to kind of leapfrog interim steps that have kind of come and gone between here and there is absolutely at the table. 
it's a bigger cultural shift than it is a um, technology shift. Um, mm-hmm. And I do think that conversations and and uh, for regular listeners of the podcast know I've got some uh, recordings from other folks about Salesforce. We talked about a, um, oh, a mutual friend um, that uh, uh, with Classy uh, that oh, uh, right um, was on the yeah. podcast as part of the conversations about Salesforce use that. What Classy does uh, and what Salesforce does and whatnot allow organizations to bypass the idea of, I, I should have a server. Um, nope, not anymore. Nope. You know, you've missed the day. There might have been a day when you should have had a server in 2004, <laughs> but um, the day is gone. And now all of that data is going to be cloud secured somewhere um, in almost every circumstance. There, there may be a very few limited cases where it still makes sense that you have to buy hardware and maintain hardware. Um, but mostly uh, we've gotten past that. And if we've got charities that are thinking, yeah, we looked at that whole idea, but, you know, maintaining a small business server on site was just way beyond our capacity and we didn't want to right. do it so we just didn't move past the spreadsheet so we yeah. still use the spreadsheet and everyone now- else suffered so that they can now benefit <laughs> they don't have to go through any of that anymore the server overheating i've been there with there some places right. i've worked yeah it's great nonprofits now don't have to suffer through that but it does require them to start thinking differently about tools like uh, uh, Salesforce, for example, which are enterprise level um, tools. I mean, they mm-hmm. can do things that most smaller charities don't need them to do. Um, and as we look to leapfrogging past a couple of stages, it may seem like, well, we can't go right into something that big. Um, but uh, it is completely uh, a matter of your own thinking that that has to be the the thing to consider here, not necessarily that you have to take uh, steps in some kind of sequential order in order to move forward. Uh, So I I do think that having that conversation with that shared leadership team about, um, is it our own perceptions that are slowing us down from implementing these technologies somehow, or is there something legitimately in the way um, technologically that's, that's keeping us from using things that would really be helpful? Yeah, and tap into that younger um, demographic in your organization that's very comfortable with tech. It's native to them. They understand a lot of it just very quickly. And, um, you know, it's a way for them to feel part of what's being decided by senior management often if you solicit their advice. So, yes, there are outside folks you can use or you can work with the team at at these tech um, companies, but your own staff can also be a resource once you especially once you begin implementation of these tools. Right. And I would um, urge us that while there are certainly um, some truisms and experience about, you know, uh, generational shifts that uh, even some of us gray-haired folks um, are very happy to move forward. Um, I only have one gray hair, Steve. Well, you may not have many, but I will speak on behalf of the gray-haired At least one that I that I see on my head. That's it. But there, there's probably a lot more up there. Um, but it, it is, I mean, I think you hit on it with culture. I mean, culture yeah. is such a hard thing to change. Often these other things we've talked about can change over time. Um, and the thing that's the hardest for people, because it's a people factor, right? Yep. We could just do it without people. It would be so much easier. <laughs> <laughs> but it is hard to do. It's about culture and relationships. And I think if you have leadership that's willing to continuously self-evaluate and be open to change about what's working, what isn't working. Because sometimes things are working. It's not always about the negative. Sometimes things are working well and you can expand and amplify. So um, I think 
you often find like the staff might be ready to go, but the CEO is not quite comfortable or the board might not be comfortable and the staff is ready. So just having that dialogue very intentionally about culture and about that it is uncomfortable and just being open about it, I think can start that, that change, you know, folks really talk about it and intentionally not just try to do it without talking about it. Yeah. The the flip side of being a little HR starved or talent starved, as you were talking about talent management, not human resources management, um, I, I think is sometimes people look at these ideas of um, investing in, in new technology tools that might shift what opportunities you have um, and can respond sometimes, well, but that's so-and-so's job. Um, mm -hmm. If we change, you know, that person won't have that work to do anymore. And I think we've got that... Um, a little bit of a, a holdover from 20th century thinking of um, I'm more loyal to my people that I have here than I am necessarily to what's the best way to solve this mission. Um, and I think there's two ways to talk to you about that that I want to ask you to consider. One is, of course, repurposing the people you do have, not exactly. getting rid of them, but having them do different things. Which but is another highly is desirable. That, well, I, I think can be, but I think the idea yeah. also, and I, I want to push on this a little bit, and, and it's not a popular position, that um, nonprofits were were created to um, impact the world, not to employ the people that are already there. And if our yep. jobs are yep. no longer the same jobs that they were and they're not relevant anymore, I, I don't think we're serving the mission well to just protect the job because there's a person we like in it. And that's cold hearted mm -hmm. and awful and all the rest <laughs> of the things you can say about it. But I, I think if there's an opportunity to talk first about how do we use those good, smart, talented people in different ways, um, and then if there really just isn't a different way and a job does have to go away, then we should face that reality and we should not continue to um, uh, hold from that because we love the people that are in the jobs as, as much as that sounds hard-hearted. No, it's very it's very practical because if everyone concerned is thinking about the mission and why they're there, then you see what the decisions are that have to be made. And you're right, it does come down to um, relationships and feeling um, connected or obligated or someone's been there forever. And, you know, it's, um, it's a tough part of, I think, Think what nonprofits have to do, but it is one of the big issues in the sector, I think, that we have to wrestle with because you do get this criticism of, well, we don't want to be like businesses who are, you know, just ruthless with cutting employees. And, you know, there's a happy medium. It's not about just cutting employees. To your point, you first look at can you retool what someone's doing? It actually is desirable for people to be cross trained in different areas of the organization. So if they're open to moving into another role that has become more important or where you need more people doing something, then that's great. You can retain their knowledge in the organization and they get to build themselves professionally. But if that's not an option, I mean, you really have to think about the mission and why we're here and what's needed, especially because the budgets are so lean. You can't afford to keep employees on just because when you are lean in so many ways. It's just, it doesn't make sense. You know, we spend a lot of time complaining about our budgets in the nonprofit world, rightly so. So when the opportunity comes where you do have to make a choice to cut back, you, you have to take it. I mean, it's really, to your point, not about employing people. It's about impacting the issues you're working on. 
And I think that part of that, uh, how we do the the talent management question is the 21st century accepted uh, idea that we are in this continuous learning world now. You, you don't go to college and learn everything that you need to learn to be a good productive worker for the next 40 years and then just go produce. Uh, I think that we have to really think about how we are continuously looking to uh, train and build skills with everybody in the workforce from the CEO level on down to the volunteers that maybe only come in very infrequently. Um, and again, our tools are different from what they used to be. Uh, you know, we mentioned Salesforce a little while ago, and they've got this um, trailhead program that allows you to kind of modularly build any set of skills using those tools that you need to build in people for kind of learning on demand. That holy macro, I just couldn't have imagined even five years ago, let alone um, 15 years ago. So thinking about how we help those uh, folks that are in our talent pool at any level continue yeah. to evolve all the time, not just when we see a change coming, but all the time yep. is a very 21st century way to think about it. Absolutely is because then you're prepared, you know, and I know we, we all still have PTSD from 2008, 2009, yeah. where so much had to just change at nonprofits all over the country. And one of the things that I think the smarter nonprofits they don't quite forget that. And so they've used it as an opportunity to continuously be ready and looking at, well, what does that mean for us? Um, have we evolved here? Are we, you know, on track there? What's our plan B? You know, what's our, I believe in redundancies, so I'm always about my plan B and C. But I think a lot of nonprofits kind of had an, an opportunity to say, whoa, we weren't ready for that because we had not been continuously improving, paying attention to external factors, you know, having people that were cross-trained. So when you do have to slim down your staff, you have people who can really do things well. Um, and so I, I think it's it's absolutely important. You're you're so right. Well, we're running very low on time now, and I want to okay. make sure that if there are things that uh, you wanted to talk about in this concept of moving forward uh, that we haven't gotten to yet, are there pieces that I uh, haven't haven't quite given you the opening to talk about? You know, there are a couple of things I want to throw out there, and I'm not necessarily going to talk at length about them, mm -hmm. but I think people should, in the nonprofit sector, be thinking more about social enterprises and mm -hmm. about earned income. And I know there used to be this fear of, oh, if we earn too much money that's not directly related to our mission, we're going to get in trouble with the IRS. But the reality is, and if you look at modern nonprofits, they're going out selling uh, merchandise or things, services now. They're figuring out how can we monetize what we already know how to do as a nonprofit. So it is directly related to our mission, but we're still going to have another income stream. So you diversify your revenue even more. And, and it may be a small amount to start with, but for some nonprofits, it grows to be a really um, significant percentage of their revenue. So when you do have a down period or you lose a funder, you have some other lever that you can, um, you can use. So I think that being open to the idea of earning money through services or products or um, cost marketing or what have you is something people should, should think about. So that's a big one. And you said there was a second thing too? Um, yeah, I think the other one is thinking about how do you really create champions and evangelists? How do you create a yeah. movement behind what you're doing? So marketing now has these tech tools. It has 
there's research out there we talked about that you can get about your audience or you can use your own internal tools to really dig deep on your audience and then figure out how do we find other people like that or how do we take the people we have and turn them into true brand ambassadors who go out and tell our story sometimes better than we can. And I think looking at your marketing from that perspective um, is the way a modern nonprofit thinks, right? Nonprofits have always done storytelling, as you mentioned earlier, but now it's about really taking it to the next level. And how do you amplify that so that you get action, not just awareness and engagement, but what kind of engagement? How are people maybe um, going to policymakers, writing letters, making phone calls, things that a lot of times nonprofits don't feel comfortable doing because they think it's too close to lobbying or advocacy with a capital A. But if you have an um, army of other people doing advocacy with a small A for you, that can be huge. And that they tell your story and they're credible. They're trusted by their peers. Um, so I think that's something else on the marketing side people should think about. And I'd like to just add to that a little bit of the idea of uh, having a cultural conversation within the charity about a loss of control of message that uh, mm. in the 20th century nonprofit, again, we, you know, we're, we're the experts, we've researched this, you don't have access to Google and, you know, we know everything. So here's the, the way to tell the story, please go out and share it. Um, as opposed to, um, there's a lot of different ways you can be supporting our work. We'd like you to talk about why you support it. What What's important to you? How, why are these pieces that matter? matter to you and why are you going to be that ambassador and you know I yeah. would like them of course to be talking about you know the the right talking points all the time but I think it's better to have that authentic conversation about the different types of the mission work that people really love coming from their own voice than it is to have them reading you know the three or four bullet points that somebody else prepped for them I think that's a different yeah. way of engaging that champion. Yeah, it's really true. And you sometimes hear some really surprising things. Like there may be three or four things that you think are the reasons people are engaged with you. And there may be like one thing that pops that you just hadn't thought was not a big deal. And so sometimes you can then take your messaging in a different direction, you know, so it's absolutely true, I think, to have that two-way conversation versus pushing out your key messages all the time without listening and hearing back what you're supporters have to say. Yeah. So, so many great ideas and even yes, more that we, we could, could go on all day, about, Steve. <laughs> but unfortunately, we do need to wrap. So I want to yes. ask uh, if you could uh, just let us uh, close with where people can stay in touch with your work and the ideas that you're pursuing. I am so happy you asked that. I can be reached at Angela at causeway-global.com. And I'm on LinkedIn as well and i'm on twitter at angela titus one if people want to follow me i have a tiny little following but um i just pay attention to what's happening in the social impact space whether it's with funders or corporations who are doing great um social impact work themselves or nonprofits who are really kind of pushing the envelope and it's fun to kind of see the evolution of the sector so hope to stay connected Outstanding. So Angela Titus, brand and social impact strategist at Causeway, thank you so much for your time. Thank you.